How does religion change the life of a member of Gen Z? I'm Robert Hunt. In Series 6 of Interfaith Encounters, I'm talking to members of Gen Z and looking at the research on Gen Z to get answers. Today, I interview Razan Bayan, a student here at Southern Methodist University. She tells us the role religion has come to play in her life on campus and her hopes for her peers. I'm Robert Hunt, and this is the podcast Interfaith Encounters. My guest today is Razan Bayan. She is a junior at Southern Methodist University studying human rights and history. Welcome, Razan. Thanks for having me, Robert. I have one question to start with, and we'll go from there. Why is religion important to you, and what aspect of religious life do you find most appealing? Um, I think religion is important to me for a lot of reasons, but... I guess the one that's most central to me is it basically provides me with a moral code. It, it provides me with like my understanding of right and wrong. Um, I think it protects me from a lot of things that uh, I might have done or others would have done that would have been harmful to me or others um, just by abiding by that moral code. Um, and I genuinely do believe it makes me a better person. And it gives me a purpose in life. I'm not wandering around here aimlessly wondering what this, what's this all for, you know? I know what's this all for, and I know my purpose. Great, I wanna follow up on a few of those, but let me go to that second question too, which is what form of, or what aspect of religion is most appealing to you? Uh, that's a really hard question, because there are, um, I love all parts of my religion, you know? But I think just, its effect on character, you know, um, Islam's, um, Islam's code for how you treat others, really, like, you can see people who adopt that part of Islam where you have that code for how you treat others, you can see it in their character, you know, you can see the way they treat even the most insignificant parts of their life with gratitude, with care. Um, you can see how they're, mo they're grateful for the smallest parts of their life, and you can see how um, even when they're struggling with a lot, and you would think in, my, in your position I would just you know, be a mess on the floor, you can see how they still carry themselves with strength because they embody these, these practices of you know, treating every small thing as if it's a blessing. Wow. So let's, let's go back a minute. And it provides you with a moral code, mm -hmm. right? Can you say a little bit more about that code? I don't mean the specifics, but um, in, the, in the big sense, how does that moral code guide your life? I know I'm, I'm struggling with this question because I feel like it's kind of obvious, not because I feel like it's hard to answer. You know, our religion tells us what is right and what is wrong, you know? Um, our religion tells us what what actions that you you can take our religion tells us what actions you can take that will benefit you not just physically but spiritually in your character in the way you conduct yourself with others in the way your relationship will be with god yeah. um and by contrast it tells you the sorts of things you do that will have the opposite effect and that will negatively impact your life 
Yeah. So the things that you need to avoid. The things that you need to avoid. Okay. And you you said something. It protects you from harm. Not only harm you do for to you, harm you might do to others, but mm -hmm. also the harm that others might do to you. Mm -hmm. Is is that right? Am I, did I understand that correctly? Yes, and the harm you might do to yourself as well. Okay, so all three of these. All three of these, yes. Um, I mean, it protects um, others from the harm you might cause because it's it's your moral code. You know, it. it yeah. God tells us to treat others with respect and with kindness and with mercy. That prevents you from harming others, right? Yeah. And then at the same time, other adherents of your religion know those same things. Or ideally, they should. And so it protects you from the harm that they might do to you. And then I really, really do feel like Islam protected me from a lot of the harm I could have done to myself, right? Especially like, let's talk as a college student, right? Yeah. There's, you, you know, Islam prohibits alcohol. Right. I don't party, I don't drink. And I'm so, so grateful for that because I can think of all the ways that could have negatively impacted my life. All the... Um, you know, the addiction I could have developed, potentially, right? Or even without addiction, the the harm I could have caused to myself, like, yeah. made it harder to do classes, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or, um, and honestly, I'm, I'm really grateful for, like, the command for wearing hijab. Like, I, I fully cover myself, I wear hijab, and I honestly, honestly do feel like that has protected me from I've been wearing hijab since I was 10, right? And I feel like having myself covered in that way during the most formative years of my life, my teen years, really protected me from a lot of the harm that, you know, society could have dealt on me. Like, I didn't develop any body insecurity issues, any major ones in my teen years, right? Because the the way that women are pressured to prevent pre present themselves in the world... Yeah. I didn't have that problem, yeah. right? Um, so I really, really credit that preservation of my mental health yeah. and my image to the command to wear hijab. I really, really think that protected me from so much of the harm I've seen in my teen years happening to other girls, right? Yeah. I mean, I think this is very interesting. I just watched a documentary on A&M Music, and one of their early um, artists, one of their most important early artists, was then known as Cat Stevens, later Muhammad Yusuf. Mm -hmm. And in the documentary, um, he narrates his what led to his conversion uh, to Islam mm -hmm. uh, through his brother, but, but it, it relates to a specific instant where he almost lost his life drowning and it made him question things. What your answer reminds me of is that this sent him into a period of questioning that would result in his religious conversion and, um, and a, a long period in which he focused not on music at all but on teaching and charity schools and doing good works that he thought built up the society. Um, but he also mentions uh, the prevention of harm that so many other artists went down. And I think it's Herb Albert, one of the two producers, who said that um, he characterized it this way. I think it was quite moving. He said, too many artists, as they were under more and more stress, dropped out the bottom. Mm -hmm. He made the decision to go out the top. Now, he would later, in his mature 
you know, 26 years later, he would go back and begin to go back into music and feel like he had created a space where he could do that morally and without hurting himself. And then purpose in life. So tell me a little bit more as, as, a, as a student now, how Islam helps you see your purpose in life? Yeah, well, you know, I, I have a goal, yeah. right? And that is to do as much good as I can in mm-hmm. my life and stop and prevent as much bad as possible. Yeah. And then um, hopefully pray to God that when it's over, um, God is pleased with the way I've carried myself through my life and um, I get the ultimate reward. Yeah. And so, you know, you know, I feel like a lot of um, people when they enter the workforce and, you know, you've gone through the whole cycle of, you know, you're done with school, you're done with college, you've mm-hmm. basically gotten some stability in your life. After a while, it becomes, um, what's this all for, you know? Yeah. I just go to work every day to go to work to make money so I can eat, so I can survive, so I can go to work, so I can make money, so I can eat, so I can survive, right? Um because I have like the answer, what's this all for? I've never really felt that conflict. I know what I'm striving for. And it also guides a lot of my choices because, you know, I'm not trying to say that I know where my whole life is going, but I know the ideal. And the ideal is to be the best person I can be and to do as much good as I can do. And that's, that guides all my decisions. Like I actually came to SMU solely to major in human rights. Like that was the decision, the the deciding factor for this decision. And I, my interest in human rights was sparked because of what Islam says about how we ought to treat humans. Um, Islam's view on um, how we treat people of different races, how we treat women, how we treat even, um, how we treat our children, right? How we treat our elderly, how we treat our uh, disabled, right? That sparked my interest in human rights. And that's basically why I'm here. So, and that gets to what you said about it affects your character. So you feel like it's shaping your character in a particular direction. Is that right? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't claim to be the perfect person. By all means, I am not. <laughs> but um, what I can claim is that I'm trying to be better. I want to ask a, a couple of other questions, if I can, sort of follow up. Uh, one you've alluded to already, which is the difference you think it's made between you and some of your peers. Mm-hmm. Right? This podcast is focusing on Gen Z, your Gen Z, <laughs> yes. and you've probably read that the, the a, a large plurality, maybe even a majority of people in the age range of 18 to 27 or 28 years old, report that they are spiritual but not religious. Mm-hmm. And it seems like what you've described as being overtly religious as well as spiritual. Mm-hmm. Right? In your interactions with others, uh, how do you understand what your peers mean when they say I'm spiritual without religious? You don't really talk about the deep stuff unless it's someone you're very close with. And 
uh, typically the people I'm closest with is all the people that share my values. Yeah. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> but um, I think that spiritual but not religious is ultimately a consequence of um, the raging individualism that we have um, in the West, right? Um, other societies are a lot more communal. And, but, you know, and lots of people have studied and said this before, but um, Western societies are a lot more individualistic. And so slowly by slowly, I'm sure we'll see this more throughout time, you have more people um, preferring individual acts of religion versus organized or communal acts of religion. And Islam is a very communal religion. It is, absolutely. And, and in that sense, when the community gathers, do you then sense something special when, for example, you join in prayer during the, either the five times a day prayer, which typically are not so communal, but particularly on Friday or maybe in the evening when people can gather? Does that make a big difference for you beyond just the obligation? It does. It makes a huge difference. I, I love the Friday prayers. We do a Week, our weekly Friday prayers here at SMU with the Muslim Student Association. Every Friday we um, have a big room reserved in Hughes Trig and <laughs> we uh, um, do our Friday prayer, which is called Jama Together. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely love it because it really does give you the sense that you are part of a community. And that's, I think that as a religious minority mm-hmm. in this country, and um, as a minority in general of a PWI. Um, <laughs> it's so, so, I don't, I don't have the word to describe it. It's just so incredible to pray with a community and know that all of these people here are gathered with you for the same purpose. And I want to invite you to say a little bit more about that because it seems like you, you said as a religious minority. Yeah. It's a moment where you're a part of something bigger than just me, but it's also, like, a moment where, like, you... Everybody around you is here for the same purpose. And um, not only that, it's... it's I feel like the emphasizing the minority experience is, like, the one time a week where we don't have to explain anything, if you know what I mean. Like... I have to explain to people, oh, I can't do that because of my religion. Oh, this means... Even, like, well-meaning people, like, I'm not criticizing anybody who has, like, questions at all. I love answering questions about my religion. But this is a time of the week where, like, you can say a word in Arabic and not have to translate it, right? Um, You can say your prayers and everybody knows, you know, what it means and what this is all about. And then you can just talk very openly about all your religious practices and, like just the sorts of things you're doing in your religion throughout your day without, you know, explaining it, I guess. Everybody yeah. gets it every, because everybody is doing it. Not just everybody gets it. Everybody is doing it as well, right? So one of the, one of the things that um, is often said about Gen Z is um, a sense of isolation, mm-hmm. a feeling of isolation. And you've, you've spoken about a, a little bit about how your, your prayer life communal prayer life overcomes that. Do you also then feel connected beyond the group that prays together with something that is historical and also something that is worldwide? 
Something that is historical, absolutely, but I think this is mostly attributed to the fact that I'm a huge history nerd. Okay. And um, I do a lot of, like, voluntary reading about Islamic history. Yeah. Um, and it's just very, very fascinating to me, um, the sorts of traditions that we're still carrying out to this day. And the way they were carried out, like, throughout history, right? Yeah. Um, because it is different when you're an entire empire, right? And um, versus when you're like a small community of 30 people in a college, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and so it does, yeah, give me that sort of connection with history. Like we've been practicing these traditions since the seventh century, right? And to know that, and like you said, worldwide as well, I actually do think about this sometimes when I'm making sujood, which is um, the position in uh, a Muslim prayer when you're um, basically bent down and your head is on the floor and you're submitting to God and you're praying to God while your head is on the floor. And I think that's the most humbling position you can be in when you're praying. And sometimes when I'm doing that, I'm thinking about how um, there are billions of people around the world that are probably in the same position right now that I'll never know that I'll never meet and there were billions of billions of people before me that were in this position that I'll never know and I'll never meet but we were all doing this act at some point so it may be worth saying for um for listeners who haven't studied or don't know about Islam that the the prayers the physical prayers and the verbal prayers are really unchanged since the time of the prophet. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, there is this enormous continuity. And in in the mosque or wherever you're praying, everybody does it together. Exactly. And that's what makes it so beautiful. Oh, so it's a, it's a bit of a different feeling than some other worship traditions where even within the tradition it changed, either has changed vastly over time mm -hmm or where it's very much individuals. They're all in the same place, but they're not all doing the same thing. Yeah. Right, okay. So it sounds like a very special uh, sense of this. Oh yeah? Yeah. So let me ask one last question to kind of wrap things up. As you're a junior, you're going to be uh, graduating in a year mm -hmm. or so, and you'll, you'll go out to work. What is your wish for your generation? Oh, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Um, to proudly be who we are. That's, yeah, that's it. I, um, yeah, to proudly and unapologetically be Muslim, right? To not, you know, like I didn't, when we sat down for this interview, you were about to shake my hand. I didn't shake it because typically in, um, uh, Islam, um, two people of the opposite gender don't have any physical contact, right? And so I know a lot of, um, you know, people in my generation who have just been born and raised here in a culture where it's shaking hands is completely normal, right? To just go ahead and do it because it's, it's normal and you don't want to sit down and have to explain why you're not doing that, right? I think that, like, just that tiny example of that interaction... I think there's power in just being unapologetically Muslim and just being unapologetically, like, breaking these norms that are just so unquestionable. And so, like, like nobody who was born and raised in American culture and who wasn't, like, educated in Islam is going to think anything of, like, shaking a hand. But just that tiny act, like, it's important to me because it's, like, my 
I'm being unapologetically Muslim right now. I'm unapologetically following my religion over whatever social norms are going on, right? And so there are, like, obviously much bigger examples than just shaking a hand where I feel like people of my generation are following social norms over being unapologetically Muslim. And that would be my biggest wish, is that whenever you're presented at a crossroads where it's appear, like, normal and unquestionably like part of the social culture to the group of people you're around or follow the religion that you um unequivocally believe in that you choose you know i want to thank you uh for being in this interview i appreciate it very much and uh, i look forward to uh, seeing you again on campus thank you by the way for your leadership within the Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's exciting. I wasn't part of the MSA board in my first two years. I found myself very, very busy with classes and stuff. But um, I think I've learned to manage my coursework over these past two years better. And so I went ahead and I applied for the MSA board. And now I'm education chair of the MSA. And it's very, very exciting to be part of Muslim leadership on campus. It sounds very exciting. So thanks again. Absolutely. This has been Interfaith Encounters. Subscribe for more conversations about religion in a multi-faith society. Next week, we'll be back with Josh Packard of the Springtide Research Institute. He'll be sharing their 2021 research on the effects of the transition Gen Z underwent going into and coming out of the COVID pandemic. See you then. Mm -hmm.